The Influencer's Edge is brought to you by the Invisible Influence Series. If you're ready to massively increase your sales by leveraging the power of subconscious persuasion, then make sure you text the word COMPEL to 411-321. That's COMPEL to 411-321. And if you're outside of the United States, then use WhatsApp and text the word COMPEL to 1-909. 741-1321. Make sure you put in your best email address because that's how we'll deliver the goodies. Welcome to the Influencer's Edge. This is the place where you come to get the latest breakthroughs, cutting-edge insights, tools, and techniques to leapfrog over the pack in sales, persuasion, and influence. Be sure you visit our website at www.theinfluencersedge.com. And while you're there, subscribe to us via your favorite network. Now sit back, tune in, and enjoy today's episode. All right, welcome to today's episode of The Influencers Edge. As you can see, my hair is fabulous as always. We don't know when we're going to broadcast these. Sometimes my hair is up there. Sometimes it's shorter. Today, it's medium batshit crazy. Our guest today is Todd Capone. So right away, Todd, you can hear from my language. This is not a family show. We go off script. I warned Todd that I tend to be an oddball questioner. If I hear something that is unusual or a gold nugget answer, I'm going to hit the pause button. I'm going to start bringing the Spanish Inquisition on your ass. Okay. So let me give your biography is so mega monster ginormous. <laughs> I said, I'm only going to read a little bit because after that, uh, it gets batshit boring. <laughs> I love that word. So Todd Caponi is an acclaimed author, speaker, sales leadership professional. Right there, I'm going to stop. What is your definition of sales leadership? What the hell does that mean? Oh, well, sales leadership. I just wrote a new book called The Transparent Sales Leader, but it's about- What's the name of it again? It's called The Transparent Sales Leader. One more time? <laughs> yeah, the, yeah the, the Transparent Sales Leader. And okay, first leadership. of all, we're going to get into what do you mean by sales leader? And then we'll get into transparent. So right away, yeah. we're, we're, we're diving in. Yeah, leadership is about getting people to run behind you, but your responsibility is to maximize the revenue capacity of your organizations. How do you do that? All right. Well, what do you mean by run behind you? I don't know what that means. Literally. Well, what, what is leadership? So there's a difference between being a manager and a leader, right? And like being a leader is somebody who leads, somebody who you want to run behind, like when you're trying to build a team so that you are, uh, I mean, from a sales perspective, the old axiom is salespeople are coin operated. I believe that's true if you're doing it wrong. That true leadership is about creating an environment where you want to show up every day, you want to stay, you want to do your best, and you want to advocate for my organization and my leadership and maximize the revenue capacity of your organization and variable compensation becomes the reward for doing work you love to do instead of the motivating reason why you do it. We're going to dive, I get it. We're going to dive into that a little bit further. Okay. Uh, he's the CEO and founder of Sales Melon. <laughs> Sales Melon. Where did you get the name Sales Melon? Yeah. If you remember, if any of you are been around long enough to have seen the movie, So I Married an Axe Murderer with Mike Myers. 
Yeah. Mike Myers plays the grandpa and he's sitting on the couch and his son has got like the, the Paul Ross hair, right? Like the, the haircut going big. And uh, he's like, you know, that, that move that head of yours. It's like Sputnik. It's like that giant melon. Like he's going to, you know, cry himself to sleep on his giant pillow tonight. Yeah. Uh, but that's like, I saw melon and I always thought of the head and my, my nerdery is around behavioral science and like, how do I make you better at what you do and give you such a giant brain that you need a bigger melon to be able to support it. Got it. Let's dive further. So um, in his capacity for tech, revenue technology, he served companies in a role of senior leadership and helping organization to a successful IPO followed by an exit valued at almost is that a billion, three billion dollars? Yeah. Hope you got a piece of that. He won the Ameri- <laughs> he won the American Business Stevie Award for VP of WW Sales of the Year. No one really cares about this. They want to know what you can teach them. Yes. That's what people want to know. Their biography gives it down. So let's get into. I'm going to ask questions that are not here, and then I'll ask some that are. I want to know what you mean by trance. Parent, you're not a hypnotist, are you? With trance or uh, or any of that, I am. What do you, you are? Mean? Yes, I, I, get, I can feel drawn mean? in already. Um, all right, I'm going to tell you a quick story. We love stories, right? So, my last role, I was the chief revenue officer of a company called Power Reviews. You can guess from the name, we were in the review space, right? We helped retailers and brands collect and display ratings and reviews. So, you've interacted with the tech. You, you buy something online from like a pair of Crocs. The reviews under it. That was us that was helping with the collect and display. The point is, we did a research study with Northwestern University that looked at when a website is acting as a salesperson, what do people do? Turns out we all read reviews today. No surprise there. But there was two data points that changed my life like it only happened to a nerd. Like I quit my job and wrote a book. Data point number one is that 85% of us go to the negative reviews first. Yep. Right, just skip the fives, go right to the fours, threes, twos, and ones. Yeah. And the other data point is that a product on a five-star scale, this is across all product categories, but when the average review score is between a four-two and a four-five, that is optimal for purchase conversion. Meaning a product that's got negative reviews right under it will sell at a higher conversion rate than a product that's got nothing but perfect five-star. That's um, very counterintuitive. It's so totally. Cool. 100%. Like there's a company you may have heard of. Um, they're called Amazon. Like you should look them up. Uh, uh, yeah, the guy who started it owes me a thousand bucks. I said, Jeff, no one's going to buy this cockamamie effed up idea, but you, you seem like a good kid. Here's a thousand bucks. Just give me 5,000 shares of your company. But now right. he didn't return my calls or anything. You know, who knew? That's insane. But, you know, back in 1995, he was the guy that was like, hey, listen, we're going to sell products. People are going to buy them. We want to invite them back to tell us whether they like them or not. And even if they suck, we're going to put it right under it. And Amazon did pretty well. The point being, that's when a website's acting as a salesperson. I had the revelation that, wait a second, why? Why as consumers are we drawn to the negative first? Why do we need that first? And why does imperfection seem to actually aid the buyer in being able to convert and make a sale? Versus trying to pretend like all of our solutions are perfect, like we've all been taught to do in sales. And so I started researching it. I found that, hey, the overlap is exact in human to human or B2B selling. We should try it. 
we started trying it, which meant by trying it, it's not a trick. It's not a gimmick. It's, hey, listen, let's help the buyer predict by leading with what they might not love, with what a competitor does better, with, hey, our pricing's higher than everybody else. If that's going to be a problem, let's address that up front. Get in front of it first. This it, is what exactly. Journeys do. If there's going to be a problem, you bring exactly. it up first so you can control the optics. Right. Or if there's an elephant in the room, right? Like they go do a Google search and found that you really screwed up some other clients, like address that first and then go, hey, if you're cool with that, here's what you're going to love, right? Present your solutions as a four, two to four, five. What ended up happening is sales cycle sped up, win rates went up. We were working opportunities we should work uh, win more often. We were losing the deals we were going to lose anyway faster. And in uh, the eight mile with Eminem, the, in eight mile type fashion, we made it almost impossible for our competitors to message against us. That that uh, movie is the one where at the end, Eminem basically starts his rap by just sharing all the things that suck about himself. And the other guy, when he handed the mic to him, had nothing to say. And so that, when I say transparency, <laughs> what I'm talking about is cards face up, right? It's not authenticity. It's not, it's like, hey, listen, my role is to help you predict. Here's the facts. Here's the pros and the cons. And it has magical impacts on trust building, decision making. And it applies not only to human to human and B2B selling, but it also applies to leadership too. And, and that's, that's kind, of a, kind of a long answer to your question. No, it's a great answer. And I think this reflects person to person outside of business, that people who have flaws, people who have foibles, are more human and relatable to us than someone who perf appears perfect and is super competent and never shows any vulnerability. Uh, I, I think it's a really good insight. How did you, how did you, was it just trial and error? Was this an insight you thought, I already know this is true, let's let the data show us? Or did you just go, oh, wait a minute, the data shows that this isn't working, let's adjust, which was it? Well, it was this idea that, first of all, it came from that research study, right? Like the research study came first, where we always knew that Amazon, like why is that working on Amazon, that people can put this, and all these other review sites. So it started there, we get the research back, and I'm thinking about, hey, you know what? I've been teaching my salespeople to hide the flaws and hope that the customer never finds out. And I was like, I wonder if that's a bad idea. And so I, I stumbled upon this the first time. I was in New York. I had a, uh, we had an inbound lead from a, uh, a big brand, it was Calvin Klein. And uh, inbound lead, I had some time open. So I had the rep reach out to their head of e-commerce at Calvin Klein and just say, hey, I'm in town. I've got a few hours open. Do you want to grab coffee? The rep reaches out. The guy says, yeah, have Todd come over. So I go to the office. I check in. We go into his office. Again, I'm thinking it's coffee. This dude, as soon as I walk into his office, hands me the HDMI cable for his monitor. And he's like, here, you can plug your laptop in for your yeah. presentation. And I'm like, I, I, I thought we were having coffee. I look to my right. People are rolling chairs into the office. Oh, God. And not just people, seven. Oh. So there's nine of us in this Manhattan office, elbow to elbow. They think I'm giving a presentation. I, I was just there to have coffee. The dude starts out with this. He says, Todd, we're looking at your competitor. We're looking at you. How are you better? And I thought, I'm fresh on this. Like, this idea's in my mind. I, 
I'm going to try it. And if I fuck it up, I won't, I'll lie about what happened back at the office. Like, I, I'm just kidding. But um, I, he, you know, he starts with, how are you better? I decide to flip the table and go, hey, listen, can I start with how they're better than us? And I know that sounds nuts, but they just released an add-on that not only do we not have, but it's not even on our roadmap. And if that's going to be an important consideration, can we talk about that now before your team builds an RFP and before I got to fly my team to New York to give you the big dog and pony show? And they're like, what is it? We hadn't even heard about it. It's a great pattern interrupt. It's oh, a great absolutely. pattern interrupt. And pattern interrupts, speaking to you as hypnotist, we know as hypnotists that pattern interrupts create a state of temporary suggestibility, a window of suggestibility through which you can walk your subject, prospect, client, whatever you want to call them. That, I hadn't really thought about it from a pattern interrupt perspective. I mean, the, the dynamic in the room just changed though. Because like, I'm a Chicago guy. Like there, there's like the New York style, right? And this guy was like right after me, which is great. There's no small talk. But after I led with, hey, here's what they've got. Here's their, their new product release. You could feel the whole vibe change to instead of it being vendor and uh, customer, it was like a bunch of people at a table trying to make the best decision on how we're going to use our time. You're on the same side of the table instead of someone who's begging for the sale. Exactly. And I, it, that, that's the other thing, you know, this idea that when I tell people that story, they're like, Todd, wow, that was bold. I actually think it would be bold not to, right? It would be bold to hope that they're not going to find out. It would be bold for me to wait three months from now from them to find out after we've replied to an RFP and I've flown everybody around. It would be bold for me to give relinquish control to the competitors to position that and go, ah, those guys don't have it, but we do. I get to control the message. I got to vet it up front. I got to build trust with it. And that never became an issue. What ends up happening though, is that because I did that, I, I think I'm biased, but they didn't end up doing the RFP. We never had to fly up. They cut off the evaluation 10 days in and decided to go with us. And I was like, wait, what just happened? That's amazing. <laughs> and that's when I really doubled down on it. I was like, all right, I think I'm onto something here. Let's keep digging. Let's take a part of the team and maybe try this. But again, not as a gimmick, but in all honesty, our role is to help the buyer predict. And if we come at it from that lens, instead of trying to convince them, our role is to help them predict. Predict what? Predict what? Predict their, so let's say you're a buyer and Paul, you've got, you've got some, you've got a hundred problems, but you probably only have the bandwidth to work on five at a time, right? That, yeah. That's how every like executive of every company is. Maybe it's three, maybe it's one. When I talk about a buyer, a buyer is like, hey, listen, I've got priorities. Where am I going to spend the limited inventory that I have that I can convert to an outcome, which is my time? It's and focused. so, yeah, exactly. So it starts with, hey, there's, there's a couple of things that I want to try to get after. We as human beings don't buy when we're convinced. Like if we do, we're probably pissed about it a couple hours later. We buy when we can predict whether the juice is going to be worth the squeeze, whether or not my allocation of my time, my resources, and my dollars is best served here or on one of those things and get yeah. to that as quickly as possible. Yes, yeah. it's, it's the, uh, there's a man, well, I, I'm not going to get into it, but he changed my way of thinking. The equation is dream outcome times uh, 
ease of achieving it divided by time delay and the amount of perceived work you're going to have to do. That's, that's what the, the way that I kind of put it is, uh, it's like a bias that maybe nobody talks about, but I, I call it the reward bias. I made that up, but that's talk about it. We but, want, but, listen, this yeah. is called the influencer's edge, not the influencer's <laughs> common knowledge that everyone knows. So go exactly. My, my, my uh, theory here is our perception of a reward is biased by the journey to get there. And part of it is about having an expectation. So for example, imagine Paul, you're like, hey, you know what? I'm hungry. There's a taco place down the street that I love. I'm going to go grab a taco. So you go, you get your car, you got your wallet, you're ready. You show up and you get there and you're like, crap, there's, there's a line out into the parking lot. Like, you know what? I'm going to get a sandwich. Right. And so you just, you bail on the tacos that you're drooling about that you showed up for that you had the means in your pocket and you just chose another option. Cause Hey, that outcome's fine too. I'm just going to go to the deli that there's no line. That's what we do as buyers all the time. We get into something. We're like, Hey, I want this. I've got the means I've showed up. And then the journey, like, you know, there's some of these sales organizations where they make the journey so hard, where like the first call is with somebody who puts you on the, the witness stand and asks you a million questions that will be used against you in a court of law later. And then they pass you to an account executive who asks you the same questions and then does a demo that has nothing to do with any of the questions that you just asked. And you're like, you know what? Instead of the tacos, I'm going to get the sandwich. Like we do this all the time. And so much of it is about setting proper expectations, but making that journey as frictionless as possible. Because again, our perception of a reward gets biased by the journey to get there. Our perception of our reward gets biased by our journey together to get there. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. It's like another way to think about it is remember high school when your English teacher would come out and go, Hey, uh, it's book report time. And you're like, I like, I hated book reports, but I was a dumbass. Um, and then they, they would uh, give you a list of 50 to choose from, like 50 of the classics. What would you do? Uh, I would look at the 50 and go, all right, which one have I read before? And again, I was a dumbass, so the answer was none. No, you're not uh, a dumbass. That's a great question. I, I don't know why you call yourself a dumbass. You see things from a completely different angle. That's well, back sense. then, like yeah. I, I, I was not one of those kids that read like Of Mice and Men and To Kill a Mockingbird just for fun. Like that's not something I did. Um, wait, 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 wait. I like to get personal with my, with the people I interview. Where did you get this way of looking at things from a completely different angle from outside the box? Have you always been this way? Or were you, did you have a model, a parent, a brother, an uncle, or has it always been how you think? That's a good question. I don't know, man. Like, I just... I look at the, the lens through, I've always been a nerd for sales methodology and philosophy and how people learn. Like people always ask me, hey, like, Todd, what's a great sales book that you read that, that you love? And my answer is, I don't read any current ones anymore. I literally, every morning I wake up and I read one behavioral science research study. Like I've got access to like the day and I just pick one. Like this morning was on first impressions, right? I just read it, but I read it through the lens of sales and sales leadership. And 
I, the reason I don't read current books is because I like to come to my own conclusions. Like I don't want somebody else's conclusion. I want to come to my own. And so it's just the lens that I look at and all kinds of crazy crap happens in my brain as a result. <laughs> but it also takes a trust in, in your own intellect. So somewhere along the line, you must have gotten the message. You're smart. You can figure it out. You, someone must have given you the freedom to think for yourself. Yeah, I mean, there was parts of that, but there was just things that always clicked with me that were a little different. Like, you know, the, the most popular thing I teach is a class called Transparent Negotiating. And it always, like, people oh, always get confused oh. by that because I always thought it was weird that, like, in sales, right, you, you build trust right to the goal line. The customer says, hey, Paul, yeah, like, let's go. And then you subconsciously go, all right, I'm going to start lying to you now because um, we're negotiating. I'm not going to tell you what a good deal is. And as a matter of fact, I learned how to negotiate from former F FBI hostage negotiators. I was like, you did? What? No, no, I'm saying that's how we, we grow up in sales. Because there are, there are legit, uh, one of my favorite books is called uh, Never Split the Difference. Yes. Boss. Exactly. And, and, and Chris is, I got to get him on my show. Chris, Chris if you're watching, please. I'll eat a turd. Oh, God. <laughs> edit that out, Tracy. Tracy don't, don't you dare edit that out. That, that's fantastic. I, so that book is fantastic, right? It combines my three favorite things, which is kind of sales, it's uh, behavioral science, and then it's like intrigue of FBI. But if you're selling, let's say you're selling software, we're, we're not negotiating the release of hostages from a bank heist. After we close the deal, we don't get to tase the person that we just that just bought from us and dragged them to jail. You have to have oh, a relationship. A fantasy of mine, but yeah, I get it. <laughs> that would be fantastic. But I've always believed in this idea of playing your cards face up, where you think about in every every B two B company that's for profit in the world, they care about four things: how much you buy, volume, right? Like how many products, how many users, how many whatever, how fast you pay. Right. How long you commit. Yeah. And when you sign predictability, yeah. those are the four. Yeah. And so what I teach is this concept of transparent negotiating, which is when you present your pricing, when you propose it, and then especially when you negotiate it, you talk about, Hey, that's what our pricing is based on those four things. And when you ask me for a discount, I'm able to go back and say, Hey, remember our pricing is based on how much you buy, how fast you pay, how long you commit and when you sign, let's look at those four and see if there's an opportunity for us to, you know, we'll pay you in the form of a discount to commit to more volume. We'll pay you in the form of a discount to pay us faster. We'll pay you in the form of a discount to commit longer. We'll pay you in the form of a discount to help us predict our business by mutually aligning around timing. And what ends up happening is you build trust to the goal line, you make your deals more predictable, you make your deals more valuable, and when they come back to buy more, to renew, to advocate for you, they leave, they go to another company and want to bring you in. You've got, you've got profitability right there. Sales, the, the sale is no longer the, the exit. It is now just a milestone along the journey in today's as a service world where you've got software as a service, product as a service. I think that we've got to rethink those traditional hostage negotiation type nego like processes that we use in sales and think transparently. 
Do you apply this in your personal life, if I might ask? <laughs> oh, dude, you don't want to know. Uh, actually, all right, I will tell you one quick story. Um, I bought a, a I'm, a, I'm a former dating and seduction coach. People, it's, it's an open secret that that's what I, <laughs> I still do it as a side hustle. And I think a seduction or a date is very much at the most important sale you ever made. Oh, yeah, I don't think I could use this stuff for that. But um, the, uh, like I went, I bought a car. Um, it was like a 2018 Ford Explorer, right? There's, they always tell you there's, when you go buy a new car, when the salesperson comes up to you, there's three things you should never do. Right. Like, you know, the, the first thing is never tell them how you intend to pay. Right. Like you leave that to the end. They always tell you if you're going to write a check, if you're going to finance it through them, if you've got finance worked out or if you're going to lease. So that's number one. Number two is never tell them if you have a trade in until the end. And then number three, for goodness sake, if there's something wrong with that trade in, don't tell them that either. Let them find it. Right. So those are the three lessons you always hear. I decided being the nerd that I am for transparency and not really caring whether I get this car or not. I'm like, I'm going to, I'm going to bring a notebook because I want to see what happens, but I'm going to flip the tables and do all three of those things they tell you not to do and see what happens. So I walk in, I'm like, Hey, I'm interested in that car. I've got my checkbook ready. I've got the financing worked out. I have a trade-in. It's a Jeep Grand Cherokee in the parking lot. And you see that smoke swirling in the parking lot? That's coming from my car. As a matter of fact, the check engine light was not only on, but it was flashing, which I've to been told later means the car is about to burst into flames. So I start with that walking in just to see. How do you not happens. bite you? Do you have to bite your cheeks from laughing? I, I was having a blast with it. and um, But I was like, I really didn't give a crap if I ended up with this car or not. Yeah. And that's part of it. Within 10 minutes, this rep had shared with me uh, how much he disliked car sales, uh, his issues with ADHD, his issues with his father. And then I decided to use it for evil a little, I guess. But I was like, hey, um, I, how do you get paid? He pulls out his compensation plan and shares it with me. And so I ended up learning all about like the, the compensation plan like that he got for this and how he get like $200 for uh, selling a car at a certain margin, but it could go up to as much as like 2000 per car. Like he was talking through all of that with me. It was crazy how all of a sudden this transparency that I led with, we got transparency back from him. And then in the end, I ended up buying the car from him and I did it at a rate that got him the absolute minimum commission, which sucked for him. But it allowed me to be able to see more, to be able to do a better job of getting a great deal. So, Well, you know, but you gave him something. You gave him the, the experience of being listened to and feeling important. So in a sense, he got something non-monetary from the, from the transaction. You totally screwed him. But <laughs> yeah. Well, and, but it's that thing you said about pattern interrupt, now that I think about it. Yeah. It's like... It, they know that people come in with this shield in front of them, that they're not going to share anything. And I walked in, I was like, here, dude, here's the checkbook. Here's the car and there's the smoke. Let's go. I, like it just, it changed like the whole dynamic. And as a result, uh, he, I, he must've like disarmed his little limbic filter. And suddenly the next thing you know, I'm finding out about his, his issues with his father. I need to circle back because you said something that's no one, I've never heard it, and I've been into sales for 30 years, and I've learned from a lot of different people, right, countless books and taking courses, a lot of which have not been of much value, but <laughs> the whole idea of predictability, that you're selling predictability, that is 
really, really brilliant. I've never really, you're selling predictability and the value of the journey along the way. I've never really thought about it that way, but those are million dollar on the edge insights. So you're well, really a great fit. For, and you notice I'm not asking the questions that are not, that are here on, because questions are always, are pretty much batshit boring to me. <laughs> exactly. And they are to me too. Like I hate submitting them. Um, because I love conversations like this, but can I uh, give you a quick little story that I think of course we love stories in the yes. All right, so my, my other nerdy, dirty joke in it because we love those too. <laughs> I have no dirty jokes in yeah. there. I apologize. Yeah. But um, all right, so when cool people are doing cool things on the weekends, I'm reading uh, books on sales and uh, sales leadership from the early 1900s. Like my hobby is sales history. I know that's weird, but. I'll tell you this one little anecdote from it. You know, this idea, when you talk about predictability, it, this idea that buyers know so much more now, like buyers know more nowadays. That phrase, four words, buyers know more nowadays. That's actually a phrase from Thomas Herbert Russell's 1912 book, Salesmanship. So it's a 110-year-old quote where the sales profession was viewed as being in peril because of the rise of advertising and marketing and that they looked at sales and they thought, hey, um, salespeople aren't going to be needed anymore because of marketing and advertising and the buyer's ability to do their own homework. Well, clearly that didn't turn out to be true. Hold on a second. I'm going to do something I never do, which is I'm going to slide off screen here just for a second. I'm going to slide back on screen. And the camera's going to defocus for a second, but screw it. I don't care. What is the name of that book? Uh, it's called Salesmanship. Uh, it's Thomas Herbert Russell in 1912. But I've got, I've read, uh, I just counted this. I've read 53 books from between 1869 and 1930 on sales. And oh, you don't have any friends or spouse, do you? <laughs> I, well, we went on vacation a few weeks ago and like we were sitting on a beach and my wife was making fun of me because I was reading a sales management magazine from 1921 while the kids are playing. She's just like, dude, you're a nerd. But that's, that's besides the point. <laughs> we think back to that. All right. So buyers no more nowadays, 1912, and the sales profession flourished. Let's go all the way to 2015. So that was just seven years ago. Forrester, the big analyst firm, put their state of sales report out. And in it, they predicted that by, nine, or by 2020, 1 million B2B sales jobs would go away due to buyers no more nowadays and due to e-commerce, right? And that hundreds of thousands of college students wouldn't graduate into the profession because buyers no more nowadays. What happened? The opposite happened. I argue that the rise and proliferation of information available to buyers hasn't made it easier on them it's made it considerably harder. Yes. Right? We are buyers. The, the hardest thing right now is buyers' ability to buy, right? Consensus selling is hard, boo-hoo. Consensus buying is considerably harder. And that if we, as salespeople, for our profession to flourish and for us to differentiate in the way that we sell, we do the homework for the buyer, right? We share the pros and the cons. We help them predict right? Here's what you might not like. And if you're cool with that, you're going to love this as uh, and I'll inject the, the wisdom of a supermodel for you. Cause like, why wouldn't we? Yeah. Why not? Right. Exactly. It, it sounds like it perfect makes perfect sense. But um, Tyra Banks, 
she coined a term called flossum. Flossum is about embracing your flaws, but know that you're still awesome. And I believe that for sales and messaging and leadership for is sure. that when we embrace that, hey, listen, our solution isn't perfect, but it's pretty darn good. I, I'm, I'm not advocating for anybody to go into their next sales engagement and be like, hey, everybody, this is why we suck. Like, no, take it easy. Four, two to four, five is really important. That's flossum. But if you're pretending like you're perfect, you're actually making it harder for your buyers to predict than you easier, know, making it harder for them to buy. I first learned this concept through one of my great mentors, who, who without whom I would not have made a penny, Dan Kennedy. I don't know if you're familiar with Dan Kennedy's direct marketing. You're familiar with Dan? I, I don't know Dan. No, I got to look him well, up. You need to look Dan up. Dan said, if you can't fix it, feature it. Which I yeah, think exactly. Well, that you look at the greatest retailers in the world, right? Ikea, like Ikea, you walk in and they have to give you a map. Like, you know, it's going to be hell on earth. You got to find what you're looking for, write down the code because you get to go to the warehouse yourself, pull a hundred pound boxes onto a cart that doesn't have brakes, which seems like a massive oversight. You jam it into your car Tetris style, F-bombing your way in through that, drive home with a souvenir injury, get home, open the box. There's 200 parts with no words on the work instructions other than the word like Svarta. And when you get yeah. done, you're like, hey, we should have bought the end tables with that bedroom set. Let's go back, right? Ikea is the number one furniture retailer in the world for 14 straight years. And it's a freaking disaster. Well, it's they, Swedish. And, and, you know, the Swedes do things their own way. But they and embrace, the meatballs though. The meatballs are, I, I know, so I've been to Sweden many times. The meatballs are not real schottbuller, as we say in Swedish. We've taught, you've been an amazing guest. I've not asked a virtually a single question that's on here because the questions are usually, as I say, batshit boring. How can people continue the conversation with you? Well, it, my name's Todd Capone. So there's the old Google machine, but uh, toddcapone.com is a great place to start. If you're on LinkedIn, you can follow or connect with- Oh, your last name? Your people are idiots. No, I didn't mean that. Well, wow. I think Al Capone, but put an, e on, or put an I on the end instead of E. So it's Todd Capone, C-A-P-O-N-I. Tracy, we're going to have to edit this episode. No, I'm, I'm not, I don't edit anything. This is unedited. People take it or leave it. They actually, I think, like it. My shocking. I like it. <laughs> you know. So, uh, Todd, thank you for being on the show. We'll see you. That's you, not them, but you on the next episode of the Influencers Edge. Thanks for having me. The Influencer's Edge is brought to you by the Invisible Influence Series. If you're ready to massively increase your sales by leveraging the power of subconscious persuasion, then make sure you text the word COMPEL to 411-321. That's COMPEL to 411-321. And if you're outside of the United States, then use WhatsApp and text the word COMPEL to 1-909. 741-1321. Make sure you put in your best email address because that's how we'll deliver the goodies. Thank you for tuning in to the Influencer's Edge, where you get the latest breakthroughs, cutting-edge insights, tools, and techniques so you can leapfrog over the pack of sales, influence, and persuasion. 
Remember to visit our website at www.theinfluencersedge.com to enjoy even more great episodes like this one. We look forward to seeing you again on The Influencers Edge Show. Thank you.